Uh, if you're new, we're absolutely thrilled to have you. Uh, we're in a series called Workology. Uh, we're part two. If, you're, if you want to catch up, you can go to awakeningchurch.com and catch up online, whether it's video or audio. Uh, but we said this about workology. Workology is the study of work and how to make it work for you. It is the study of work, and we work uh, more than almost anything we do in life, and yet few of us have taken time to actually study work. And we have a longing to somehow make it work for us, but we're not exactly sure how to go about it. And believe it or not, the Bible says a ton about work. This morning, I want to talk about what I'm calling the millennial dilemma. Uh, we're actually a church made up of um, far more millennials than any other generation. And so I want to take a moment because the work world has changed dramatically as a result of basically two main categories, millennials You know what, if you come next service, you're going to be like overwhelming the odds. There'll be like three woos. Um, and basically non-millennials. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is going to be a fun morning. I can already tell that. Now, here's why this is really important. The question we really want to wrestle with this morning is how to be at work, how to actually be. And we have, in, we have this clash of generations, this clash of cultures, this clash of values when it comes to that fundamental question. And we often want to insert how to be successful at work, which is certainly true, how to be happy at work, how to be fulfilled, but fundamentally the clash comes among the generations, not with the answers to those, but how do you actually be at work? Because millennials, you guys have gotten a bit of a bad rap. You're uh, known as the trophy generation because everything you did you got a trophy for, whether you deserved it or not, and so others have labeled you entitled as a result. Millennials, you have been known as the boomerang generation because you go off to college, but you boomerang back to home, often to no fault of your own. There's not a job, especially in this area, you can't afford to live. Millennials have been known as the Peter Pan generation because they just don't want to grow up. And so you've been labeled lazy, entitled, and high maintenance. Yeah. You know, this is a subject matter in which every major business publication has addressed consistently. Large-scale studies are being done of how do we be at work with these two almost opposing cultures. By the way, in 2016, millennials surpassed baby boomers to become the largest generation in America. There's approximately 83 million of you baby boomers. And every day, every day, approximately 10,000 millennials turn 21. If you want to know the age range of a millennial, there's varying opinions on when it begins and when it ends 
Based on my research, it begins in 1983 and goes to about 2001. Gen Xers, do we have any Gen Xers in the room? Please, you wouldn't identify as a Gen Xer. That was a trick question. Don't label me. All right. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't help that one. I couldn't help that one. You, your generation, 1965 to 1979-ish. And then there's this middle category. I'm putting myself in this middle category. I'm 36 years old. Uh, Zennials. Is anyone from 1979 to 1982? These are those of us who don't feel like we belong with Gen X and don't feel like we belong with millennials. I had, I literally had no idea how personal this was going to get right from the beginning. In fact, Zennials, we we can call ourselves, uh, have been self-described, calling ourselves as the lucky ones. Others have called us the Oregon Trail generation because we grew up with the game, the Oregon Trail, the green screen. Now here's where the clash comes. Millennials. You have a different value system when it comes to work than non-millennials. And what happens is we tend to make whatever we value most right, moral. Millennials, one of the biggest values for you is your work needs to have purpose, needs to have impact, need to make a difference. Non-millennials, often the way you think about your work is not just that it has purpose. Certainly you want that, but providing is far more important than purpose. It's great. It's nice if it has purpose, but I have to provide for myself. I have to provide for my family. Millennials, you think about work and you want input. You value input. In fact, you want to have a say in every part of the organization immediately. You want to give your input often. You believe you have incredibly, incredibly valuable things to say. Whether or not you've been there a year or 10 years. In fact, on the flip side, you want input as well. You no longer desire to have an annual review or a biannual review. You want constant review and looking to a boss or employer to be more of a mentor than anything else. Whereas non-millennials, your value system is output. What can I produce? What do I get done? What are the results Millennials, you value flexibility. Want to be able to work when you want, where you want. In fact, that's one of the reasons that you've gotten a little bit of a label is because uh, you so value flexibility that if you find a job that is inflexible, you'll just go to another job. Where non-millennials value stability. Yep. Yep. I should have said no elbowing at some point through the course of this. Now, here's what's fascinating. Gen Xers, you've become known as the entrepreneurial generation. I don't know if you knew that or not. You've become known as the workaholic generation. However, do you remember what you were known for 15 years ago? (laughs) 
It was not the entrepreneurial generation, was it? Nor the workaholic generation. You are known, and I'm saying you because I'm a zenial. <laughs> it's cheating, isn't it? It's just cheating. You are known as the slacker generation. You are known as the angsty, don't label me, do whatever you want, never going to get a real job generation. And yet, right now, we have this clash of generations. And and my word to those who are non-millennial, be careful to the labels that we give others because others often live up to the labels we give them. And where we wouldn't say, you know what, instead of thinking about it, you're lazy, entitled, and high maintenance, which is just so degrading. Man, how great is it that you are seeking a job to have a purpose and make an impact, and you want to make a difference with your life. Man, we can build something great with someone like that. Yeah, and by the way, baby boomers, you're extremely loyal, you're a team player, but you don't adapt well. And we live in a culture that desperately needs people who adapt well. Millennials, they adapt well. Could it be that we need each other? So how, how do you be at work? Whether you're a millennial or not, how do you make work work Regardless of where you work, who you work with, or what work you're doing. This morning, we're going to finish our time actually in the book of Ephesians. We've been studying this book uh, for about the last couple years. We've been teaching through it uh, systematically through series. That's where this series came from. Last series was marriaging, and we're talking in Ephesians 6, 21. Uh, The series before that, uh, what was it, Spark, uh, and talking about human sexuality. We've been working our way. This morning, what I want to do with our time and talking about how to be at work, because this will transform your work world, whether you're millennial or not millennial. And what what I want to do is give you the big overview of the book, and some of you are like, we've been there before, I know, but this is going to apply specifically to our work, and then give you the context for the passage that the Apostle Paul is going to be teaching on in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, and then we're going to dive into it, and we're going to see three core areas for us as followers of Jesus. Because guess what? You know what our label is? You know what our main identity is? Not millennial. Not Gen Xer. Maybe the lucky ones, maybe. (laughs) Our identity is Jesus followers first and foremost, and everything else flows from that. And by the way, we have more in common than we have not in common because we're followers of Jesus. And so how do we make it work, and how do we actually be at work? If you got your notes, would you open them up? I'm going to dive in. Big idea from the very beginning when it comes to how to be at work. First, you must embrace, I must embrace, that your work does not define your worth. 
Your work, your job, your career does not define your worth, your value, your significance. What you do doesn't make you valuable or not. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that what you do isn't valuable. It's incredibly valuable. It's incredibly worthwhile. But there's such a danger, such a trap especially for us in the Silicon Valley, but it's everywhere, that we begin to identify our worth, our value, our, our significance based on what we do instead of whose we are. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, turns the conversation. And Ephesians is broken up into two main categories. And chapter 4 is the turning point in the book and where he's connecting what he said in chapters 1 through 3 and going to connect what he says in 4, 5, and 6. And he says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, meaning he is in prison, not like just metaphorically speaking. He's literally in a Roman cell writing this out for his faith in Christ. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, At face value, when I used to read this passage, it became one of these things that I somehow try to whip myself. Maybe in the Christian life, maybe you've tried this. I urge you to live up to. Like there's this bar. There's this standard of being a Jesus follower. And somehow I'm going to try to reach it and stay there. And so I live under a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, constantly feeling like I was never good enough. It's interesting, this word worthy is to live in a manner corresponding to the reality of what you already are. And this word calling, it, it has to do with the position you hold. And so, this is not live up to the standard, but live out who you already are. So, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is what theologians call the indicative. The indicative is telling what's already true about you because of what Jesus has done. Not that you're living up to, but because of the finished work of Jesus, the indicative, indicating what is true of you. Let me just read for you what's true of you, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I got it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. By the way, what's true of you? You are blessed. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, what does that look like? For he chose us in him. You're chosen. You've been chosen by God. Like he looked at you and said, I want you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his kids, as his son. That you're chosen, you're adopted. And then he's going to go on. And say, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has freely given us in the one he loved. In him we have been, we have redemption through his blood. Like your starting point. Can't miss this. 
Your starting point with God is based on what Jesus did, not what you can do. And your starting point is chosen. Your starting point is blessed. Your starting point is redeemed. Your starting point is forgiven. And that is who you are. And who you are informs how you are. And what we do is how we are informs who we are. And he's saying, by the way, by the way, by the way, your work does not define your worth. The indicative, chapter four through six, then, is the imperative. If this is who you are, the imperative is how do you then live out or live into who you were made to be? What does that look like? It's interesting. Jesus, as he started his earthly ministry, remember this? And he shows up to John the Baptist. And he gets baptized. Heavens open up and you hear this voice of God. It would be amazing if this happened for some of us. This would be so good. But do you remember what God said about Jesus in that moment? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Let that sink in. What had Jesus done up to this point? He spent 30 years in obscurity. Son of a carpenter. So he's practicing the family trade. If you want to go between sacred or secular work, he was doing secular work. He was a carpenter. He was building things for others. And in that moment, where he was at, God looked at him and said, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. This is my son. Your identity is my son, and I'm well pleased in you, and I'm pleased with you before you did anything for me. And by the way, that's your position with God. That's your standing with Jesus. Like he's looking at you, says, I'm well pleased. And some of you are running the rat race to somehow please someone. somehow to be approved. And so the starting place to how to be at work is your work does not define your worth. And so here's the affirmation. Here's like what I'd say. This is the morning affirmation for us that we have to let permeate our soul. Like for some, this needs to be on repeat every day, multiple times a day. Right here. I work from, and I I left the blank blank because I think you need to fill it in. Not for. I work from approval. Not for approval. I work from significance. Not for significance. I work from acceptance. Not for acceptance. I work from love. Not for love. See, I don't know which one of those hit you, and there might be something else there. But whichever one, write in that space and just go, okay, that's my morning affirmation. That's my daily affirmation. This is my position in Jesus based on what he has done, not what I can do. And it informs how you be at work, how you be a Jesus follower, not just a millennial, not just a non-millennial. Second, 
is not only that your work does not define your worth, your attitude is not dependent on the atmosphere. Your attitude is not dependent on your workplace, on the office politics, on the culture, on your direct report, on that person that is just annoying. Well, you happen to be in this group, and you know what? You got transitioned out of your one group that you loved, and you're in this new group, and this new group, oh, the culture is terrible. And so you bring a terrible attitude into it because you don't want to be there. And as followers of Jesus, the calling... It's like, and your attitude is not dependent on the atmosphere you're in. You're actually in control of your attitude. You get to choose your attitude, by the way. You're not a victim of the atmosphere. Ephesians 5.21, we taught this passage right here at the beginning of our marriaging series. It's the idea of mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea of mutually submitting to one another, and then Paul's going to apply it to the marriage relationship, then he's going to apply it to parents, and then he's going to apply it into the work world and the workforce of what that looks like. But this idea of mutual submission, this word submit is the Greek word huputasso, a Greek military term meaning to arrange uh, troops or divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. However, in non-military use, it was... A voluntary attitude. I'd box that. Voluntary attitude. Of giving in. A voluntary attitude of cooperating. A voluntary attitude of assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. Wouldn't it be amazing if you began to read this verse and realize this applies to your work world as well. Not just maybe your marriage relationship or friendships with others. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Have a voluntary attitude of cooperating to an uncooperating group out of reverence for Christ. Have a voluntary attitude of giving in out of reverence. Christ. Have a voluntary attitude of carrying another's burden, even though the culture says, put you first. Get yours. Your attitude is not dependent on the atmosphere around you. By the way, your attitude is the most contagious thing about you. People catch it. We've all been around people whose attitudes impact the atmosphere, haven't we? In fact, there's times when that person isn't in the office space, and you're like, oh, thank God. Oh, that's so good. And there's times, and we all know this, right? We all know that there's people. There's people who walk into the office space, walk into your work environment, Walk into, oh boy, your house. And you're like, oh, thank God you're here. See, we have two choices, by the way. We can either be a thermostat or a thermometer. A thermostat sets the temperature, a thermometer reads the temperature. 
we get to choose whether we're going to be setting the atmosphere, the temperature in the room, or simply responding to the temperature in the room. We get to determine what kind of person we will be, and we get to go, hey, by the way, hashtag blessed, hashtag forgiven, hashtag all the rest chosen. I'm walking in not because I'm like, oh man, what a poor boy am I. I'm beloved son of the King Most High, and so I can step in here and I'm going to be a thermostat for good. I'm going to bring life and hope. I'm going to affect the atmosphere so that when people see me, they're like, thank God he's here. Wow, man. Wow. Wow. So glad. So glad. They shift the atmosphere every time they are around. So our affirmation is this. Out of honor for Jesus, I will honor you. Out of honor for Jesus, I will honor you. See, I'm going to begin that I work from approval, not for approval, so I don't need your approval. And so out of honor for Jesus, I will honor you because Jesus gave it all to me. I am a new person. I am a new creation in him. And so out of my honor for him, I can give you honor. I'm not going to speak critically or negatively behind your back when you're not around. I'm not going to be that person that just smiles when you're around, but then just shoots down everything you just said when you go around. I'm going to be a person who's a thermostat that brings life and joy out of honor for Jesus. You know, one of the ways to be a thermostat is to pay attention to your hellos and goodbyes. I remember um, as I started this church, I really sucked as a boss. I never had been one, so I didn't know how to be one. But I, I can be a pretty emotional guy. And so I have highs and I have lows. And specifically, Sundays are great, but then Mondays are, sometimes you have the Monday blues, Right? Okay, just me. Fine. You guys are all amazing. <laughs> Whatever. And I'd bring all that emotion into the office place. And I had no idea that my attitude impacted others so drastically. And I remember a guy by the name of Bill Hybels wrote this great little book called Axiom. And in it, he said, pay attention to your hellos and goodbyes. I'm like, well, no, this is just the way I think. I'm like, nobody really cares to say hi to me. I'm a nobody. So I'm just going to put my head down and work. So if somebody would come in, I'd just be working. Pay attention to your hellos and goodbyes. It's amazing. I have, I have had to put a discipline into my life because I am a task-oriented person. I love seeing results. I love getting things done. And in that, unfortunately, sometimes you can run over people. And maybe some in this room are task-oriented people. Pay attention to your hellos and goodbyes. Where you walk into the room, instead of just addressing a problem, you say, hello. How are you? Nice to meet you. How's the kids? How's your life? And then pay attention to your goodbyes as you walk out of the room. It's part of the way that we can adjust the atmosphere. When you enter the room, are you a thermostat or thermometer? 
how to be at work. Your work does not define your worth. Affirmation number one, I work from approval, acceptance, significance, not for approval. Your attitude is not dependent on the atmosphere. And so out of honor, out of honor for Jesus, I will honor you. And finally, how to be at work. Your character is not informed by your circumstances. Your conduct is not informed by your circumstances. Your integrity is not informed by your circumstances. You know, Christianity wasn't birthed from the powerful, but by the persecuted. It wasn't birthed by the majority, but by the marginalized, the mistreated, the misrepresented. In fact, one of the great mysteries to historians is how the church survived the first 200 years of existence because of the intense persecution and opposition to Christians. And the Apostle Paul begins Ephesians chapter 6 and his conversation about work this way. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. See, in the New Testament church, a large majority of followers of Jesus were slaves. Had no rights. A slave in that day, by the way. In the, under Roman rule, a third of the population was slaves. Absolutely no rights. There's different tiers. This is the Greek word doulos, really bond servant. Paul often identifies, opens many of his letters as a servant of Christ Jesus, as a slave of Christ Jesus. But what he's going to write is so subversive in the midst of an unjust and oppressive culture like Rome. The Greek understanding of a slave, by the way, Aristotle, some of you like to quote him. I quote him from time to time, but, but we don't often quote this part. Viewed slaves as living tools, nothing more. An object to be used. And then you come to the New Testament and you come to Jesus and you come to an incredibly powerful teaching. You can flip over with me to Galatians, if you will. Back to our point, your work does not define your worth. He says this, Galatians 3, verse 26, You all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and, and have clothed yourself with Christ. Now this is a radical statement that he says right here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. The racial divide is gone. Male nor female. The gender divide is gone. Slave nor free. The socioeconomic divide is gone. For you all are one in Christ. And when the New Testament church gathered, you had slave and free, masters and mistreated, gathering all in the name of Jesus. And they're trying to figure out how do we live this out in a culture that is clearly anti all that we claim we value and hold dear. 
That is unjust. That as a slave, you are an object and could be used however you want and then dismissed and killed at any moment. What he didn't tell them was to rebel. He told them to be Christian right where they are. That your character does not inform your circumstances. Now we can't dismiss that some have used a passage like this to justify slavery both in Britain and America. Wrongly so. But we also cannot dismiss that it was Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus who, because of the New Testament teaching, gave their very lives for the abolishment of slavery. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Who you are and how you are should be consistent no matter where you are. He would say in other parts, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But who you are and how you are should be consistent no matter where you are. And so slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. How? Just as you would obey Christ. How? Just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Hmm. You know, we teach friend of Christ a lot, don't we? We don't teach this part so often, as slaves of Christ. And yet, that was one of Paul's main identities is, I am the bondservant, I am the servant of Jesus, meaning, man, all that you did, I'm going to surrender and submit my entire will and way of life unto you. Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly. How? As if you're serving the Lord, not people. Now why? Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for what good they do. Whether they're slave or free. You are looking forward to the reward of God, not the reward of man. You are looking forward to a better future, an eternal future, not a temporal future. And then what Paul says next is so subversive. In a land that had multiple laws, that if you didn't abide by these, you'd be Ostracated, I can't, couldn't come up with the word, but taken from your community. He says, and masters, some of you are masters. Treat your slaves, your doulos, your servants, in the same way. In the same way. With respect, sincerity of heart, wholeheartedly. Why? Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and he shows no favoritism. What the New Testament clearly teaches is that our character is never to be informed by our circumstances. Now here's what we do. 
We tend to justify our behavior based on the circumstances that we're in. We have a culture that says, well, <laughs> it's kind of the way sometimes I hear, um, some, sometimes my kids do this. So especially my two boys, they're outside playing basketball, and then one of them comes in like crying and hurt, you know, and I go, what's happened? And then the other boy is talking, you know, and, oh, this boy hit me. And I'm like, okay, hit me. And then their response immediately is, but he made me do it. <laughs> right? But he made me do it. Like, you don't understand how he was acting, what he was doing. He made me hit him. The funny part, or not so funny part, is we still operate that way. And we do it with our work. We do it with, you know what? I'm going to just give a little lie about my salary to get a better salary at this new job interview. You know why? Because we live in such an uh, incredibly expensive place. I, you know what? I'm just going to cut corners in this part because everyone in my industry does it. I have to do it to get ahead. You know, it's, it's not like it's hurting anybody. It's not unethical per se. Like, you have to add per se at the end of it just to. <laughs> and we tend to justify our behavior that it's not that big of a deal. Everyone else is doing it. It's what it takes to stay competitive or I'll go back and make it right. Some of you have a, a complex and say, so no, 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 I'm going to go back and make it right. No, you're not. Here's how we justify it. So uh, yesterday I was umping for my son's uh, uh, baseball game, double A baseball. And at one point, he is running around the bases. And he got an, he's coming to second, and I'm the outfield ump, and I'm right there, and I'm watching him. And I notice that he's so engrossed with where the ball is that he's dancing near the base. <laughs> but he never touched the base. And he's dancing near the base, and the ball goes through the shortstop, and he continues on to third base, and everything, the dust settles and all of that. And here's what I did. Oh, God, what a sovereign God you are. <laughs> that you would place me as the outfield ump to be able to look and see my son had missed the base so that I could overlook him missing the base. <laughs> you know, it hurts when you call your son out. Walk over there. But sometimes we use even Jesus-y language to support things that he would never support. Well, he wouldn't have put me here if, you know, one of the core things I want to teach my kids, to do what's right, regardless of whether it goes right. To do what's right, even if you know it's not going to work out right, I want them to know with the shadow of a doubt that your character is not dependent upon your circumstances, but who you are and how you are will be consistent no matter where you are. Why? Because I'm chosen. 
I'm beloved. I'm adopted. I'm redeemed. I've been completely forgiven. And so, I'm not working for my worth. I work from approval, not for approval. I'm going to allow my attitude to be the thermostat in the atmosphere so that when people see my phone ring, they want to pick it up. And when I walk into the room, they smile. Because out of honor for Jesus, I will honor you whether you're honorable or not. And I'm going to be, by the way, I'm going to be. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to lead our family in such a way that my character is never informed by my circumstances. And so I will affirm this. I will bring my best because I want to give my best to Jesus. That I'm working for somebody completely different. I'm not working for you. I'm working for Jesus. I want to bring my best. I want to do whatever I do and have the integrity of heart that I would be able to present it to Jesus and go, here you go. What do you think? What do you think? It's all for you. Uh, This morning as we close... I just want to take a moment. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And I just want to give you a moment just to replay some of those. We talked about your identity. We talked about your attitude. Talked about the character. And just give you a moment as they just begin to play as you sit there. And just ask the Spirit of God, okay, what what is the area that you want to work on? What are the affirmations that I need to hold in front of me Until they become not just like an idea I think about, but something that's truly a part of me. How do you be at work? Would you take a moment and just simply go, okay, Jesus, this is where I'm at. I'm trying to find my worth in what I do. This is where I'm at. I long to just hear your voice that you're pleased with me and that's enough. No, the reality is I've been critical and judgmental at work. And I've blamed everyone else for my attitude, but I'm going to take ownership of that. Or maybe there's some things that you've been doing that you need to go, okay, I've (laughs) I've been different in different areas of my life, and I want to be the same person. And you just bring that to him, and he will meet you right where you're at.